0: I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly, education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How Can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Sam Willoughby. Sam is a two-time BMX world champion, 2012 Olympic silver medalist and coach to his wife, Elise Post, who's shooting for gold at the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. You and your wife are getting ready for Tokyo 2021. What is the process like preparing for the final stretch? It's almost there, right? It's about a month or two away. The final stretch of competing at the Olympic Games.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, we're in the exciting part of it and, and also the a little bit stressful part. You know, you, you put this plan together um, kind of years in advance and then with everything that happened in 2020 it all got mm-hmm. pushed a year and you had to adapt and and change and um but that's a you know a skill in itself so it's getting down to that time now where we're kind of approaching the 12 weeks out mark and um it's it, you, you start looking at your plan on on paper and mm-hmm. um, you obviously you naturally you have those moments of second guessing or is it going to come together or is that right or is this right and and ultimately it's about you know, backing the decisions you made when you're in a, you know, a good, uh, I guess a removed calm place 12 months ago and, um, and, and, and adapting as you need to. And, but along with that, there's a lot of excitement because there's so much good that's coming together, you know, for release in you know, preparation and, um, fortunate to have some very great people in our corner. And, um, and this is, this is kind of why we do it. This is what gets the juices going is going out there and, um, and testing yourself. How did you
0: guys shift and
1: adapt when
0: they, you know, canceled 2020 uh, Tokyo and rescheduled it for 2021?
1: Yeah, it was obviously disappointing for Elise. I mean, she was in such good shape. She started the year out winning the first two World Cups. She was the current world champion and was heading into, you know, into Tokyo in 2020 with, um, you know, great expectations. And then to kind of have that, you know, shut off and, and not to admit as well, the world championships were scheduled uh for May and they were meant to be in Houston so for her to have a home home world championship to lead into the Olympics would have been just an amazing experience but um at the same time it was she you know she took a few weeks to kind of reset and you know allow that disappointment to set in a bit but also just allow yourself to shut down and um and and switch off for a little bit and take a breath and then you know that was kind of for me, as the coach, that was my time to go to work and reset the plan and and think about you know how can we use this time to add our advantage now. Like what can we do a little bit better that we didn't want to mess with you know in 2020 because you you just you know you don't want to change everything in those last few months. So it gave us some time to to address some areas in in performance that that we may not not have touched um, if the games were held in 2020. Sam, you left home at the age of 16 to pursue
0: your dream of BMX. That caught my eye. I'm really curious about that. Tell us that story. Yes,
1: yeah, so I had a dream from when I was about eight years old that I wanted to go to America and race BMX professionally. That oh. I remember Mum tells the story. It was a, a Wednesday night out at Cross Keys BMX in Adelaide uh, where I grew up. And I was reading the BMX press magazine, which mom and dad would get us with our can and bottle money every month um, <laughs> and I was flicking through there and they always had like a section in the middle about two pages of um you know color pictures and articles of American racing and just a little update of what's going on abroad and um I just always remember looking at that section and it just, you know, the colors were brighter, you know, the tracks were bigger, the stadium, you know, was, those was indoor races, all the manufacturers were based in America and it just, it just looked bigger and better. And, mm. um, I said to my mom that night that I wasn't going to get a real job and I was going to go to America and race BMX professionally. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I think she kind of laughed and, um, my mom's a school teacher. So she was very much like, well, you need to finish school first. Um, but that was what I said. And that was my dream from that day forward. And, um, when I turned 16, I just won the junior world championships in China. And, um, I came home from that trip in China. It was around June of 2008. And, um, I wanted to go to America at the end of that year to race the ABA grands. That was, that's the big race over Thanksgiving weekend in Tulsa, where they decide the national number one pro. And, um, I just wanted that. was my dream to go to that race. And I said to mom and dad, you know, if I save up enough money, can I get a ticket and go and race the back half of the year over across the fall months in in America? And, um, they were like, yeah, sure. And, um, my, my dad and my brother in the building industry in Australia. So in my uh, school holidays, they got me some side work with, you know, bricklayers and plumbers and that kind of thing. And I was, I'm not very handy at all compared to the rest of my family but i (laughs) guess i just just did kind of the the crappy jobs that they didn't want to do and passed them tools and that kind of stuff and and saved up a bit of cash and bought myself the cheapest ticket i could find which was on air china and went i think it went adelaide sydney auckland taipei and then eventually to la (laughs) (laughs) um but i made it to la and um what was meant to be a three-month trip uh, that mom and dad I think thought was just going to be a bit of experience for me and I have never come home. So those three months passed and
0: and what did your family say? What was their support like? What was their guidance like?
1: Yes yeah, so I was fortunate in that I don't have the story of you know, unsup- you know not supportive parents. My parents were and still are to this day amazingly supportive and so I was never going to go to America and, you know, be stuck on the streets, but they definitely, um, as I look back now, like, and I, you know, I talk to 16 year olds now, and I imagine their parents letting them go. And it it was a big decision for them to make, you know, for me at the time, I was just like, I'll be fine. I got to go like I've organized it all. And that was part of my task was, you know, mom and dad wanted to see, you know, how are your internal flights in America going to look and who are you going to stay with? And so I had to, plan all that and show that there was a plan in place and I wasn't just going to um, you know sleep on a floor somewhere in LA Um, (laughs) so yeah got the plan together and um, Elise was kind of already in the picture at that point you know we met at the world championships in China earlier that year and talking on the internet and stuff and somehow she convinced her parents to allow me to come and stay with them and travel around with them and I don't know how she convinced they they laugh about it still of the fact that their, their daughter said there's a 16 year old boy from Australia that's going to come stay with us, and um, I guess that shows the power of uh of the when it comes to convincing people of stuff. She she got that from her mother, um, so yeah. Anyway, I got yeah took off and um yeah I think you know if you ask my mum now it wasn't an easy decision and right. it was yeah but something that they felt would. You know, they could see that I was pretty dedicated at what I wanted to do and that I was driven and it wasn't just a a trip to go and goof off in America. It was um, to kind of try to pave my way and see where I fitted in in the world of BMX.
0: Yeah, there's something powerful when when you follow your passions, when you follow something that you love, and it's not easy, right? It's not easy for your parents. Like, I, I'm sure if we brought them on this conversation, you know, it's very complex. Like, what do we do? How do we manage this? Our child who's obsessed over this BMX, and, and sort of allowing him to flourish and experience that and really live out his dream and his passions and his skills. And, and this is a very difficult thing for people to do. And people struggle with this day in and day out out and you obviously pursued your passions right full throttle i'm going to work i'm going to take a plane yep. you know five six layovers get there <laughs> to la what would you advise whether it be to young people or other people just a general advice to other people who are seeking to pursue their passion
1: yeah well, i think that's the first you know step to finding uh i guess your place of it is finding what you love to do and and mm. then and then having the willingness to to put you know, your best foot forward at whatever that might be, but also understanding the practicality side of it and that it can't just, you know, for us to exist and and live in this world, it, it has to be practical from a from a work standpoint, from a financial standpoint, there has to be a, a long term plan with it. I mean, there's it can't obviously just be throwing the ball at the back fence, you know, because there's there's not a lot of a lot of places you can you can go with that. So it has to be realistic and it has to be measurable and it has to be attainable, um, and I think that's one of the the biggest things is to to not be afraid. People shouldn't be afraid to dream big and uh, and to not confuse goals with expectations. So as we're dreaming
0: big, as we're sort of chasing our passions, how do we um, fan that flame? How do we grow and and build structures to support those
1: dreams and passion something that i did throughout my career which at times was criticized was I, I always acknowledged the what ifs and um and i think it's really important that we do that and don't shy away from the things that could go wrong and, it, and it's not about you know f- um dwelling on them but it's about acknowledging them and coming up with coping strategies and, and ways of how you're going to manage t- manage those things because it, it it's really not a matter of if but when with with any venture that you set out on that you know there, there will be rocks in the road and there'll be you know you might have to uh you know change the path a bit you know go sideways in order to go upwards and so i think acknowledging those those what-ifs has to be a big part of the plan and um you know planning to that's a part of planning to succeed um as well and 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 not getting too far ahead of yourself to where you get lost from the process and just jump right ahead to the outcome and just go, you know, that's, that's where I'm going. I think it's good to acknowledge the outcome at the start. Like for me, it was, you know, I want to be a professional BMX racer in America and I want to, you know, win the ABA title within America, but okay, that, that's great. That that's the goal. It's almost like, I didn't even need to write that down because that was, that was a given. Um, but then it was about figuring out, okay, what's the steps, what's the process and how is this going to look? How is this going to play out? What are some of the what ifs that may arise and how am I going to deal with them? And, um, and you, you don't have all the answers and that's okay, but Mm -hmm. at least trying to acknowledge and, and be as best prepared as you can to, to adapt along the way.
0: Some people might say, you know, you flying to America at 16 to pursue that dream was a little extreme, you know? Sam, you don't have to do that. Why? why, Can't you just ride in Australia? (laughs) Can't you ride in somewhere a little bit closer, maybe New Zealand or something like that? You don't need to come all the way to America at 16. What would you say to that?
1: I would say to, yeah, never be afraid to, you know, step outside of your comfort zone. I Mm. think we, uh, we learn so much about ourselves, you know, when we are um put outside of our comfort zone but also don't be afraid to put ourselves outside of that because it it can be very easy to fall into a a rut of um you know just going with what's easy easy and what feels good at the time and sometimes what feels good right now doesn't feel so good down the track so Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um yeah it, it for me it wasn't even about like oh that's an extreme step it was the only step because that was part, part of the process to get to what I believed the the ultimate outcome was that I that I wanted to get to
0: and what did you do about school
1: so my yeah like I said my mum has been a school teacher all her life and um so that was a big thing from uh for us that I had to complete school like complete my year 12 um which I wasn't I wasn't great at school and honestly didn't enjoy school that much. So we either, I had to go and uh, luckily in Australia, we have some good uh, programs that allow you to do school by correspondence. And so there's a, there was a college in Adelaide where I grew up called Martin college, which was kind of set up for this sort of situation where someone had, you know, um, athletes had to leave, uh, leave the country or, you know, were traveling a lot and needed to homeschool or even just people that struggled with in, you know, in-person learning and um, needed to adapt their education a little bit. Um, So they were able to set up, set me up on a course um, kind of online, which I completed uh, basically completed half of my year 12, sorry, half of year 11 and all of my year 12, Mm -hmm. um, by correspondence um, online when I was in America. So you mentioned, you know, you didn't really love school. I can relate. I didn't
0: really love school. Most kids, sadly, right, they don't really love school. But you loved BMX, right? They didn't have to, like, coax you on the, <laughs> no. the track. They had to, like, keep you off of it. What was it? Like, what stoked that love of being out there and comparing it to the things that, you know, that you didn't love in school?
1: So I think, for for me for BMX, it was the head to head competition. That's what I just embraced and loved was trying to yeah. beat the person next to me, um, and the challenge that came with. Not in a malicious way, but in the challenge that came with that. In that BMX is an individual sport, and it it was all on me. And I enjoyed that that pressure and that challenge of you know how am I going to plan to to be better than I am right now or better than I was yesterday and what does that look like and and breaking the sport down and it's a relatively young sport from a training standpoint and a uh, technology standpoint so that it was somewhat of a blank canvas and and kind of drawing from you know other sports and being prepared to look outside the box a bit and and really challenging the ways that it could be gone about to to become successful in BMX and so I enjoyed the the thinking and the The research side of that and but I think I enjoyed it because I was passionate about it and and I could see where that learning was going as far as school now like going through and probably most adults could say this but going through Mm -hmm. the process that I went through with you know with BMX and and the I think I've learned how to learn if that makes sense and I could go back and do do school and and really enjoy it and a lot of the stuff I'm doing now with um, doing a little bit of um, schooling at the moment um, with some physiology stuff uh, with, to help with my coaching, but and I really enjoy it. But it was just I think just an immature learning mind at that age, and and not understanding that you know in order to learn a skill that will maybe benefit what you want it to benefit doesn't necessarily have to be specifically. In the learning process doesn't have to be specifically related to that you know you can take skills out of any situation and then adapt and, and mold them and i have and learned that the most you know through my i guess we haven't really touched on my injury yet but through what happened with my injury and the, how adaptable my skill set was from sport to then go and deal with my injury
0: i think there's so much we could learn by just finding out what young people or anyone what they love and what drives them and how they engage with that and then bringing that to the school. Sometimes I feel like schools are just trying to like force kids not to do stuff they love about in this like boring brick building, you know, it's kind of
1: sad to think about that. Because we do learn so much better when we're we're doing something that we love. Yeah. And it's really just, I guess there are plenty of creative educators out there that are doing it and doing Mm -hmm. it really well. Um, Yeah there's obviously still probably educate a lot of educators though that are very stuck in the, in the basic or the, the standard way, which works for some, but, but not mm-hmm. for all. And, um, I think teaching is one of the hardest jobs in the world, you know, like going in and mm-hmm. being around my mom and she's done it and just, it's the brain is so complex and everyone's yeah. so different in, in so many ways and being, you know, trying to, to teach a class of, you know 20 30 individuals is Mm -hmm. very talented people educators are and um i know that even like just we've done some coaching clinics and different things just with younger kids within bmx and that's something that they love and just trying to you know one kid to the next Mm -hmm. they just have to be taught so differently and the the language and the approach has to be so different you know they can be the same age and both doing something they love but the things that get through are, are very different
0: uh, I was telling a friend that I was having you on the podcast and he was like, Matt, ask him about his first legit bike. I want to know <laughs> that, that that first bike he had. I'm like, really? Like, you think that'd be interesting? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's going to want to know
1: that. So tell <laughs> us. So my first, I guess my first race bike was, wait, it was just a little 16-inch that we got from a garage sale. <laughs> um, but then the first brand new bike I had from the bike shop was a talk ridge Ridgeback. Um, so it was a big, it was probably bigger than the bike. I ended up racing on, you know, at the end of my professional career, cause mom and dad just went and got the, you know, the strongest, um, bike that my brother and I could both race on and, you know, ride around the street and jump dirt jumps on and ride at the skate park. And this was a big Crow Molly bike with, and it had two. Um, like double tubing down the top tube. So that I guess that created the Ridgeback look, which is why it's a talker back. Ridgeback. Um, but yeah, that was the first brand new bike I had. Let's
0: travel back in time, like 10 years or so prior to the 2012 Olympics, where you won silver. What were some factors of your training that helped you achieve that
1: success? you know my my work ethic and my process driven mentality was ultimately what allowed me to probably get that success at a you know I was only 20 years of age in mm-hmm. London so i think yeah my ability at that age to to break break things down to the to the finer details and, and and be prepared to to work on those individual weaknesses and strengths in order to to make my whole package a bit stronger i think they were probably the two attributes that helped me throughout my whole career but especially to have a lot of success at a young age
0: now you've mentioned this before the idea of process
1: bring us into that a little bit
0: more what does that mean to you
1: yeah so to me process driven is um the ability to to break down the skill within the skill um Mm. or to yeah i guess just break things down to a to a, a i guess a more complex version of what the the ultimate outcome is in order to to make those individual processes better in order to make it, the outcome better um, and i guess it's um yeah not confusing the, you know specificity with it's being prepared to understand that you know just if you practice one skill you're only going to get as good as you can get at that one skill there's going to be a point where it plateaus And in order to better that skill, it has to be broken down even further to the point where you basically take a step back in order to take two forward. Um, Mm. so, you know, that's like, you know, like with anything with strength training, for example, it's the, you know, the willing, you know, if you want to get stronger, you're not just going to lift your, your maximal weight all the time. Um, you would probably, you know, Find a percentage of that or find a point within that lift where you're weak and, and, and isolate that one area in order to make the the bigger area or the, the actual skill better. So
0: give us an example of how you applied that to BMX leading up to the 2012 Olympics.
1: BMX, I mean, there's so many... <laughs> areas of our sport There's the the gates, there's the technical aspect, there's the Mm. mental aspect, there's a physical aspect, uh, a tactical aspect. So I guess for me, um, to give an example, um, I needed to, in order for, to be successful at that Olympics and, and the world championships that year, um, I was 20 years of age, my biggest competition was 25 and he was, you know, six feet, six foot tall. Um, very strong muscular guy um, with a huge, you know, a huge foundation under him. So for me, it was, I needed to get a lot more power and a lot, you know, a lot stronger, put more muscle on. And so I guess the, uh, the process of that was, you know, pushing myself back to, you know, throughout 2011 and 2010 was breaking, you know, breaking myself down really to become strong, bigger and stronger. And, um, and ultimately not having a lot of success, especially in 2011, in order to um, be, you know, bigger and better and stronger in 2012. Uh, what's something from
0: those games that continues to replay in your mind?
1: Something that really stood out, stands out, is I had a really bad first day of competition. So I barely made it out of the heats. So I went in as wow. the world champion and just, um, yeah, just. I guess the pressure in the moment got to me a little bit and um, I I remember going back to my room and I'd received like a lot of handwritten letters from kids in schools in Australia and I didn't want to open any of them before the event because that was part of my that was one of my I guess processes or goals was trying to um, and I think looking back it was probably a detriment in that I was trying to pretend the moment wasn't big rather than acknowledging Mm. that it was and then coming up with coping mechanisms um so I remember going back after that day and uh, having a phone call with my dad and my brother and they kind of related it to a football game because they love football and you know you've had a you know you had a nervous first quarter and um you get to reset now and and come out and it's a new day tomorrow and um I remember that phone call pretty vividly but I also remember just kind of saying screw it and going and opening some of those letters and and Mm -hmm. reading it from kids and it was just really refreshing to just read some letters that were just so far removed from the olympics and um i mean they were related to the olympics but they they were kids writing Mm -hmm. authentic letters with you know crayons and lead pencil (laughs) and just you know saying just the funniest stuff. And most Mm -hmm. of them were just kids telling me about themselves and, Mm -hmm. and their lives and, you know, how they got a dog and and dad, dad's a fireman. And, and, um, you know, just, and it was just, um, I guess a bit of a reality check to be like, Mm -hmm. well, all right, this is not bigger than life, but it's important. And it means something to you. So just go and put your best foot forward and, and do what you can do and control the controllables and, and it'll be what it will be. And um, so I guess it just put my feet back on the ground a little bit from, you know, going in there with this mindset of, you know, I'm not going to feel the pressure or not. It's not a big deal. I'm just going to go and race and not really acknowledging it. And then kind of being hit in the face like, hey, this is this is r- massive. And and then, you know, reading those letters and going, OK, I've acknowledged it. I recognize it. And now go out and do your job.
0: What would you say to kids like those that wrote letters to you or kids that you're interacting with? And they're like, yeah, I want to, you know, I want to go to the Olympics. I want to compete with BMX. I want to be a world champion.
1: What what would you tell them? I would say that's fantastic. Like go for it. Um, and you know, don't, uh, when we're talking about kids like that young, five, six, seven, eight years old, like that's the first step, you know, have a dream and dream big. And, um, and go out and, and tackle it, and don't be afraid to fail, and don't be afraid to, to try things. And um, and I think at those ages, like more is better. Just do do what you love, and and mm-hmm. do it do it a lot, and 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 learn about yourself.
0: Sam, you had a tragic accident in 2016. For our listeners who might not know what happened, can you briefly describe it?
1: Yeah. So in uh, 2016, three weeks after the Rio Olympic Games, I had a training accident at my local track here in Chula Vista in San Diego, where I was doing a routine warm up and basically flipped off the back of my bike and went up in the air into like a half back flip and came down, landed on the top of my head and uh, broke my neck at C567 and was basically an an instantly a quadriplegic. Um, So since Mm -hmm. that was September 10th of 2016. So I have, um, yeah, been in a wheelchair since, um and yeah at the moment of the accident i was yeah instantly paralyzed um legs were instantly paralyzed and eventually actually lost movement in my in my upper extremities and hands as well um which fortunately i've been able to to get back um but still yeah considered a quadriplegic um i still have some uh, less function in my left hand and, um, okay. and basically, uh, yeah, motionless and no feeling. So sort of from about my nipples down,
0: the doctor said, you know, like you just mentioned that you would never be able to walk, uh, but you were able to walk and you were able to dance on your wedding day. How did that happen?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, um, that was kind of a, I guess, a goal of mine right after my accident. Um, it was a pretty low point right mm-hmm. after my accident, where I actually said to my wife that my now wife, fiance at the time, we were set to get married about seven months after that, my accident. And the first thing I said to her when she's seen me in hospital was, you're not marrying me, you're not marrying a cripple. She basically held my hand and with a tear in her eye said, I'm not going anywhere and um, we're going to get through this together. And mm-hmm. um, Yeah, after those words, I guess I vowed that, it didn't really matter to Elise, but to me, it was important for me to show. I didn't know what my outcome was going to be at that point. I didn't know what the next steps were. I'd, you know, the doctor had talked about permanent paralysis, but it was so early on that, you know, my, my dream, and my goal is to get back on my feet and I, I wanted to stand at our wedding and I wanted at least to have wedding photos that looked like what we were. And, um, and that was important to me. And, so, yeah, I worked, as, worked my butt off. We postponed our wedding. Um, about, we postponed it from it was meant to be in April, and we pushed it to New Year's Eve that same mm-hmm. year. Um, so it allowed me, I guess, that was about 15 months of rehab. Um, and I was able to get to a point where I had enough strength in my hands to hold on to a walker and stand mm-hmm. up with the assistance of I had some like leg braces on that were kind of helping me keep my knee locked out. Um, Mm. and yeah, I guess with my gained bit of core strength and upper body function, I was able to stand at our wedding and, and ultimately I was able to train myself to, um, although I don't have mo function in my legs, um, kind of manipulate the spasms and the tone I have in my hips and my quads to allow me to, um, walk down the aisle um, with Elise.
0: There's obviously uh, many facets to the recovery process, right? It's multi-dimensional, it's Mm -hmm. complex. As I'm thinking about that, I'm wondering if a big part of the recovery process also had to deal with some identity. How did you grapple and understand your identity in the wake of an accident like that?
1: Yeah, it was pretty tough. Like initially, I went through some pretty hard times of burying my head in the sand and felt feeling like the only way out of this for me was to walk again. And the only way that I could be comfortable within my own skin, um, was to stand up and, and walk again. Um, I didn't like who I seen when I looked in the mirror. I didn't feel comfortable in public and basically shut myself in the house for, um, the good part of the first eight months and just did rehab every day. And, at that point, I needed assistance of everything. I mean, getting into bed, putting on my shoes, you know, taking a shower, going to the bathroom, getting in the car. Couldn't really do much at all for myself, and um, and I really didn't want to learn how to do it in a wheelchair mm-hmm. because I didn't want that to be my life. Uh, and it was around April of 2017. So the fall, fo- like basically seven seven or eight months after my injury my brother was living over with us uh, with him and his his wife and there at the time the newborn son and uh, Matt was just helping me with all my rehab and we've been best friends all our lives and um, so he was here as like support mechanism and just helping helping in any way he could he quickly became basically a spinal cord injury therapist and <laughs> um, just took to it and and helped me, and um, it got to around April, and he said, "Like we need to get out the house." Like I just didn't want to leave the house; didn't want to be seen in public. I worried about mm-hmm. what people would think if they seen me with a lease, and I just I wasn't happy with the person I seen in the mirror. And anyway, there was a NASCAR race on um, in Fontana, which was a couple of hours from our house, and Matt knew I loved NASCAR, so he arranged for some tickets through a friend of ours that worked in the industry, and. Um, this particular friend said, you know, he arranged this sort of VIP experience and um, basically he'd said that, you know, I do all that, go meet and greet all the drivers, but at 10 AM, like I want you to go to the number 13 truck and, um, and meet this guy. I know I've known him for 30 years. His name's booty Barker and he's in a wheelchair, but I need you to go and meet this guy. Mm. And at the time, I didn't, first of all, I didn't even want to go to the race because I didn't want to be seen in public. Uh, But Matt essentially, you know, threw me in the car and and took me there. Um, And then I definitely didn't want to go and meet anyone in a wheelchair because I just didn't, at that point, I didn't really want to talk to anyone in a wheelchair because I didn't want to know anything about living in a wheelchair because I didn't want that to be me. And I, you know, I hate to say that now, but that was how I felt at the time. And so anyway, we went and um, and went to the number thirteen truck, and there was Booty. He comes wheeling out in his wheelchair and um, introduces himself, and he's just the most upbeat, outgoing guy you've ever seen. And um, he's and here he is, you know, thirty years later from the exact same injury as I had, running this multi-million dollar, you know, NASCAR Cup team. He's the crew chief of the team. He's an engineer, um, and the first thing he said to me was like how long you been hurt for and I said oh seven months and he's like cool you look great brother like what are you going to do now Mm. and um I didn't really know how to answer that because I didn't know and my brother kind of stepped in and he said oh you know Sam's you know working hard on some rehab and um he wants to be able to stand at his wedding and um so he's working at that and and booty you know he's got a Southern accent from West Virginia. And he was like, cool, man, then what? And <laughs> <laughs> and I was definitely didn't know how to answer that. And my brother kind of asked Booty, he's like, so you tell Matt was a bit awkward when he was asking that he was like, so uh, when did you, you know, stop rehab? And he's like, rehab? I didn't do no rehab. They told me if you put your shoes on, you can leave hospital. I did that in three weeks, got the hell out of there, got an engineering degree and got on with it. And uh we were, you know, even more taken back. And then he looked at my brother and he said, Here's the deal. Him and I we can do him and I are the same as you. We're just gonna have to drag ourselves around a little more. Mm -hmm. And those words just really resonated with me because until that point I'd been told, like, you know, you're gonna you know, you're gonna need a minivan, you're gonna need assistance with this and you know, traveling going to be, you know, you're going to need help with that. You're going to need, you know, you travel, you're going to have to stay in the special hotel room and all this stuff. And then there was this guy that's actually living it and had the same injury that's just figured it out and doesn't do any of that stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, drives an F350 truck and lives in a totally normal house, you know, no adaptive stuff and just makes it happen. And it, for me, it was just a new outlook on, on life and my possibilities. And, The ability to be independent again and the ability to to exist in society and that was that was like my wake wake up moment I guess of like Mm. you know this can this can be what you make it you know this can be however Mm. you want it to be and um and that was where I really you know we left that day and I went home and yes I still had the ultimate goal of wanting to stand and walk at the wedding but the ultimate goal from then on was I want to be independent and I want to be, you know, a part of society. And I want to be, if I'm going to be in this wheelchair, I'm going to be the the best version of Sam Willoughby in a wheelchair Mm. and I'm going to figure it out and, and find a way. And, and, and it was slow. I mean, it didn't, I didn't just come home from that meeting with booty and just, you know, become, I guess, as, as independent and as happy as I am today. It took, another good year or so. But it was about, you know, from that point on, you know, I'm going to put my own shoes on, I'm going to figure out, you know, how to do it myself. The first time I dressed myself, it it took 35 minutes. And by the time I was done, I just laid on the bed and went back to sleep because I was exhausted. Um, but it got better and better. And um, and I think that that's the biggest challenge of this, of this injury. I mean, I went from Sitting on the start gate at the Olympic Games in Rio, you know mm-hmm. where the biggest challenge was nailing the start and coming across the finish line in first, and everyone telling you you're, you're Superman, and to to three weeks later, learning how to hold a toothbrush, learning how to mm-hmm. put my shoes on again, and learning how to take a shower by myself again, and that's a that's a gut gut punch. That's a reality check at 25 years of age, and um, mm-hmm. and it and it takes. It takes, um, I guess, you got to dig pretty deep to get motivated to do those tasks. But I guess I really just drew back on the mentality I had in sport and the the lessons that BMX taught me, and that um, you know when you when you break down a proce- you know, break down an outcome into a process, and and get the same satisfaction out of achieving and. Um, bettering those individual little processes as you would for the ultimate outcome. You know, that's when you start to set off on a real path for success. How do you think
0: your view of maybe yourself or just like your view of the world has shifted or changed as a result of, you know, that tragedy? To say it another way, how do you view the world or yourself differently today than you did in 2012?
1: I honestly, I don't think I view it much differently. It's just that, it, that the the goalposts have changed a bit in that, um, you know, at the start of the injury, I, I remember laying in hospital and, you know, i had those moments where it was like, oh, I just, you know, in tears and I just want to go back to what it was before, you know, that's our natural reaction when anything goes wrong. Like I just want to go back to what was normal before, but, you know, normal's forever changing and, um, yeah. As time's gone on, my approach has gone more and more back to that. That's who I was, I think. So it's gone back into that, you know, process driven, you know, very competitive person. And I've just had to adjust those skills to now it's within coaching. And, you know, now it's every day when I wake up and embracing my own struggles every day, you know, they look a little different than they once did. Learning to get the same enjoyment out of them, because I think the reward now is, is greater you know although it used to be a medal or it used to be a sponsorship and or money or whatever it was now it's the satisfaction of being the best version of myself under very trying circumstances and that's Mm. extremely you know self- gratifying and and rewarding thanks for
0: sharing that story bringing us into that and sort of allowing us to see some of the you know some of the pain that you felt and the process uh that you've gone through and some of the joy uh, that you're finding as well like you just said you know the things that you view differently now as opposed to then and uh in some ways i think you said they, they could be more rewarding Um, And that's really powerful. Um, And like you said, you're coaching now. uh, And I also mentioned this in the intro, gearing up for the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. From your experience as an athlete and a coach, what can a coach do to have the biggest impact on their athletes?
1: I think the biggest thing is um, you've really got to ride the roller coaster with them, but also be the, um, in order to be a proper shoulder to lean on under the, highest pressure times so that means you know being riding that wave with them day in day out and and removing Mm -hmm. yourself a little bit from the emotion of the situation and being able to be a a calm um figure that can assist in making decisions and can and can also reinstate confidence when when needed and um and and fuel it also when when needed that was something that i feel that you know, I, I lacked a bit in my career was I never really found that you know strong um, shoulder to lean on in a, from a coaching standpoint that um, that can be really powerful that relationship and mm-hmm. so I think that that's probably the 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 number one thing um, yeah that you can that you can provide as well as obviously the the planning and the, the structure and um, and helping the athlete have confidence within within that plan and um, and helping them to understand that plan in order to you know to guide through the the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of sport yeah you definitely got to that plan and
0: the process and the knowledge and the expertise but it's interesting you started with the relationship you know you started with this interaction you started with just like you know, they're going to go with the ups and downs, you know, they're going to be with you. They're going to be a shoulder that you can lean on.
1: Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day that, you know, athletes are human, human Mm. first and um, you have to, you know, they're not machines and they're not Mm. robots. And it's about, you know, adapting to to their individual personalities and their, their their individual traits and um, learning how to, you know, the program has to suit them as much as they have to suit
0: the program. I want to pause this podcast for a moment to let you know about another great podcast. Hey, everyone. My name is Mike Dunn, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Rethinking EDU. Our podcast is a roundtable discussion about education possibility. We talk with professionals from around the country who are doing groundbreaking work reimagining and remaking schools. Come check us out at
1: rethinkingedu.co or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Now, let's get back to the show. That's such a good reminder to be reminded of relationships are the foundation. You know, students aren't machines. This isn't a machine learning, you know, this isn't right. AI in school buildings, but relationships uh, should and could and hopefully will continue to be the foundation of effective uh, school and learning. Yep. Sam, this has been so great talking with you today. As we wind things
1: down, who do you want to give a shout out to? I guess I'd give a shout out to my family and any any young, striving people in the world and out there that... Um a daring to to dream big and in whatever that might be, um, chase it down.
0: Time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast?
1: Um, I think the biggest thing is don't confuse goals with expectation mm. um, and keep the keep the drive internal.
0: Sam, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a great and wonderful enlightening conversation to those listening thank you thank you for tuning in to diving deep edu if you like this episode subscribe share it out post a review on Apple podcasts all of those things will help get this podcast out to more people until next time Wow it's time to reflect that's astounding you've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver and the show provoked hope that's a true desire.